Hello there and welcome to Panoramica. I'm Tom O'Connor, the host of Panoramica, which is a series which brings you enlightening, engaging and entertaining conversations. I've been a presenter on a community radio station in Galway in the far, far west of Ireland for just over a year. And it's been absolutely an amazing experience, one of the best of my life. Unfortunately, though, I found that most interviews for the show just scratch the surface of a topic of a person or whatever it may be. Panoramica came to mind as a solution. It is a series of conversations that don't just end because the next segment has to come on. Most conversations for Panoramica are done in person, so they're more natural and as clear as possible because, let's face it, Zoom can be a bit of a pain. Today, though, here's a good interview I did over Zoom with an incredible woman in America, Nancy Hollander. I was truly raging that we had to end this interview early because of time constraints for the show. In some ways, this interview gave birth to Panoramica, and it should give you a flavour of what this series is all about. Nancy Hollander is a criminal defence lawyer who has defended many people over the years, including two detainees in the famous Guantanamo Bay. Her fight for justice for Mohamedou Salahi, who was wrongfully detained in Guantanamo for over a decade, has been made into a Golden Globe-winning film, The Mauritanian, which stars Jodie Foster and Benedict Cumberbatch. I started off by asking Nancy whether she always wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, no, I didn't. I always wanted to be a doctor um, all my life. And um, I, it, it's a long story of how it happened, or really kind of a short story, but a weird story. Um, but um, when I was thinking of going to medical school, and by that time I was older, I was 30, and uh, I had a young child. I was a single mother. And a friend of mine said, well, you should be a lawyer. That's the medicine that you do. And I said, oh, all right. And I applied to law school uh, the next day. It was the last day to apply. I applied to the University of New Mexico, the only place I applied. And I got in and I became a lawyer. Wow, okay. And how did you find that? Because um, law, law studies, particularly in the States, are very difficult or they're time consuming. How did you find that while being a single mother? Uh, law school or being a lawyer? Uh, law school, when you started off. Well, it was hard, and um, there were a lot of things I couldn't do. I couldn't be on the moot court team, for example. Um, I would, on the weekends, sit my little six-year-old down in front of the TV watching cartoons, and I would get all my work done by 10 o'clock so we could have the day to play. Uh, I just had to, you know, you have to schedule it. It's certainly possible. Um, it's not the end of the world. And um, were there any times when you said, this is just too much, um, I want to back out? No, no. No, never, okay. And, and not, no, but in the summers, my son went to visit his grandparents who had originally lived in Albuquerque where I was, and then they moved to Costa Rica. So he spent his summers in Costa Rica uh, from the time he was six till he was about 15, because that way I had the summer to work or to study or, um, you know, to not have to worry about him. 
Okay. And then when you went into law school in New Mexico, did you always want to go into criminal defense and uh, even branching into human rights? Uh, yeah, that's the only reason I went to law school. I had been working in Chicago uh, with a group called Jobs or Income Now Join. I'd written a book, been a photographer, um, spent time with people who I took to lawyers. I uh, sat in on their court appearances, uh, managed to get myself arrested um, a couple of times. And uh, that's the only thing I was interested in was criminal defense, um, civil rights, and then later uh, international uh, work. That came much later, though. Much later in the, the career. And I suppose you have a track record of taking so many cases that other lawyers didn't want. Some lawyers take the odd pro bono that's a bit strange or um, that they just, they're just doing once a year every, or every two years. You, you have a track record of doing so many of them, though. Uh, what inspired you to take on those very difficult cases and the ones that nobody else wanted? You know, um, I don't know what inspired me. They were things that happened. I went to visit a friend in, in prison and she said, would you please talk to this woman who needs a lawyer? Um, and I ended up doing it for 15 years. Her name was Precious Bedell. She finally got out uh, and is doing very well. Um, but uh, I've had a very supportive law firm. Uh, there are just at times four or five of us. Now there are six or seven, um, but the, the, they're all men. Occasionally there was, there was a young one woman partner for a while. Uh, otherwise, it's just me and the guys, and um, they've always been very supportive of my work. And they, everyone has done pro bono work in my law firm of uh, different sorts. That's why we became lawyers to serve the community, and um, you know that's that's what we do. And uh, when I used to uh, did a lot of drug cases, and um, somebody came in uh, and wanted to know how I did the pro bono amnesty cases. And I said, you know, thank the drug trade because that's how I got the money to do them. <laughs> and uh, anybody, most people who are listening will be familiar uh, with that movie now because it's, it's been quite popular in Ireland, the Mauritanian, about uh, Mohamedou's uh, story. But the, for those who are unfamiliar, would you mind just running us through um, Mohamedou's story, please? Sure. Um, Mohamedou is from Mauritania, um, and in uh, he went to he got a scholarship. Very poor family, uh, but he's very smart. So he won a scholarship to attend college in Germany. Um, went there, um, was in Germany, learned German, um, and discovered that Germany uh, was recruiting Muslims to go and help. Uh, fight the, the Soviets or the communist regime really in Afghanistan, which was by that time supported by the Soviet Union. And the, the, the efforts to raise, to get people to go were true in Germany and the US everywhere to join the Mujahideen. This was in about 1989, 90. And he went and Al-Qaeda was there. Uh, he joined Al-Qaeda, um, but uh, he left as soon as the uh, communist government fell and there were fights between various uh, factions and tribes. He left and never went back. Um, but that was enough for the US government in um, 2001 
to decide that he was uh, a person of interest to begin with. And there were some other things. Um, his cousin, um, who's known as Abu Hafsal Muratani, was a spiritual advisor to bin Laden, but he left at 9-11 because he didn't approve of it and said it was anti-Islamic to bomb these towers and kill all these innocent people. But earlier than that, this was the last run of it, um, Abu Hafs had called Muhammadu and asked him to send some money to a, his father who was ill. And um, in countries like Sudan and Mauritania where you can't just wire it, there's something called the Hawala system where he gives money to someone who gives it to someone who gives it to someone and it ends up as his father and you trust everyone. And that's what Muhammadu was doing. The problem was that that phone, sat phone, satellite phone was being tapped and it was bin Laden's phone. So the government said, aha, this must be money for terrorism. All of that turned out to be false, but they uh, captured him uh, in Afghanistan, in, in uh, Mauritania, just like it is in the movie. In the movie, he drives away um, and leaves his mother and um, he drives away and leaves his mother. And uh, in, in real life, that's exactly what happened, mm. uh, right there where it was filmed. And they sent him to Jordan. He was there for about seven months. Uh, the Jordanians said, this guy didn't do anything, but Jordan was at that time a secret black site. Um, he knew where he'd been. The US government didn't want to disclose that. So he went to Afghanistan for two weeks in Bagram Air Force Base and then to Guantanamo. And the rest is pretty much history. Yeah, and it, it's not easy watching um, the film. And I'm sure that some stuff was held back because it must have been absolutely terrible. And that, that uh, the word terrible doesn't do it justice at uh, the torture he withstood. And I was wondering when I was watching the film how people could uh, torture people like Muhammadu for so long in such terrible ways. Um, and I'm just wondering, did anyone in Guantanamo or anybody involved with the, the, the system there ever show any remorse to you or to any of the prisoners for what the prisoners endured? Uh, no. Um, there is a um, documentary that John Getz just recently did, it's in German, where he interviewed a number of the torturers. And um, it's not pretty to watch. There's only one who says, you really shouldn't have done that. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think that torturers suffer uh, ultimately like the people they tortured. And, um, you know, eventually it, it has to, it has to damage them or damage their soul or damage them. I mean, really damage them internally that they can treat another person this way. Um, and how were they- frightening. Yeah, and how were they made do that? I, you, you say that you mentioned there about Muhammad that he was a member of Al Qaeda, but he left uh, well before the, 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 let's say 9-11 attacks and things like that. He wasn't the significant member in Al Qaeda that um, the US, state sometimes um, made him out to be. 
And there was that scene in the film, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, when somebody says that uh, George Bush was getting daily updates on Mohamedou's situation in mm -hmm. Guantanamo. I mean, how did, how could somebody who was so innocent be made out to be somebody who was this big villain? Well, you know, talk to the other 39 men who were in Guantanamo. He is not the only one mm. who was totally, totally, completely innocent. Um, he's the worst who was tortured there in Guantanamo, uh, for sure. Um, but um, they figured out pretty quickly um, that he had done nothing wrong. And then the question was, what were they going to do? Were they going to actually let him out to tell his story? And ultimately, the story came out through government documents um, that were unclassified. And that's probably the only reason uh, we got his book out. It took seven years mm. to get the government to let us get the book out. And even at that point, and, you know, Guantanamo Diaries, the book that the movie was based on, I mean, they bought the rights to the book. Um, but the movie goes much farther than the, than the book. The book was written in 2005, um, after the, right after what we call the torture time. And, uh, you know, it took us until 2012 to get it out. And even then it had 1,200 or 2,500, I think, redactions. It's, 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 it is um, staggering. And when you first, not when you first met Mohammed, because I suppose you didn't get to know him, but when you were read his, reading his letters about the experience in there, what was your, how did you feel? It's very hard. It's hard to, to read about torture. Um, and it certainly had an effect on me also. Um, it's, it's difficult to read and I couldn't read it all at once. Um, and it took a long time before he was comfortable enough to actually talk about it. And there's parts of it we've never talked about because he didn't want to. Would you have felt, would you ever have felt angry? Oh, angry? Oh, About yeah. It. Yes, of course. And and I'm still, you know, anger is a, is a weird feeling um, that one shouldn't carry with them, I suppose. But yes, I, I'm still angry about it. And I'm angry about the fact that there are still people there. And we still, uh, that should be out. Some of whom have been cleared for release. One was cleared for release in 2009. And he's still not out. And one of the things, you know, the book we hoped would get Mohamedou out. And I think it did help get him out. We hoped that the movie would help get him out, but he got out before the movie. So now we hope, uh, Mohamedou and I and uh, the others, that this movie will get this conversation going like we're doing here and focus more attention on the people who are there. Mm. And is there, the, now that there's been the change in administration from uh, the Trump regime to the, the, not regime, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, do you think there's that political will to do it? Do you think there's that, that impetus to do it? He says he wants to do it. Uh, so did uh, Obama, but he has done nothing. And um, nothing. I think three people left. Um, but he hasn't set up any mechanism to um, arrange, you know, to have a, a group in the State Department of people who work on this like Obama did, um, but he, he hasn't really done anything. And we, the Guantanamo needs to close. 
-hmm. You know, all those people who are cleared for release should get out right now. And the rest who have never been charged should get out right behind them because there's nowhere in our justice system that we keep people because maybe they, they're dangerous. If they haven't committed a crime and you can't, don't have any probable cause, then they leave. And then the ones who have been charged under the military commission, which is just a, not a real court by anybody's definition, um, their cases should get resolved and we should lock the door. And is there torture still going on inside Guantanamo? No, um, no, not like that. They're certainly being locked up for that long is a form of torture. And mm. being in solitary, as Mohammedu was, is certainly considered torture. Mm. But there's not the kind of um, active, brutal um, beatings, etc., and waterboarding or any of that happening now. And do you think uh, justice has been served in Mohammedu's case? Is there more that has to be done? No. No, their justice has not been served at all. Mohamedou has made the decision to, um, to forgive everyone. And that's his right to do. And he sees it as something no one can take away from him. You know, he, for so many years, he had no control over his life. And this is something he can control. You know, he can control forgiveness. Um, and so he's forgiven everyone. But has justice been served? No. Justice will begin to be served when they lock the door to Guantanamo. And did it take Mohammedu long to forgive all those people for those atrocities that were done to him? He did it the moment he got out. Um, if you, you saw the movie, you see the mm -hmm. part, the, the real part at the end where he's just gotten out and he's in Mauritania. He had a press conference and um, we had talked about a press release and he had it, but instead what he said was, I forgive everybody right then. And were you able to, were you shocked when you saw that he forgave people? Would, how'd you? Um, I was a little shocked that he did it so quickly, um, but I knew from talking to him that that was his mindset. It, it would shock me. I mean, the, the little quibbles or stuff we'd have in our families with our friends and it takes days or sometimes weeks to forgive them and then compared to that over a decade of uh, terrible torture it puts things in perspective I never wouldn't wish it uh, on my worst enemy even um, but there's a lot to be learned I thought that that was a dramatic effect in the movie that he forgave them so quickly I, I thought in my head that couldn't be real but uh, I'm amazed to hear that. And in the film, there's this scene when you were going um, to one of the courtrooms and there were protesters outside sort of calling you traitor and all that, that sort of stuff. How did you deal with that adversity um, while you were re representing Mohamedou and also other um, acu accused pe people accused of crimes? Uh... You know, I, I don't let them stop me. Um, I, I, that particular scene didn't happen in this case, but it's happened in others. Um, I wrote this op-ed piece to the New York Times, which if you haven't read, you might want to read, called I'm a Terrorist Lawyer, I'm Proud of It. And uh, I wrote it in, in 2010. It's on, still on the New York Times website. And you'll recognize, um, you'll recognize the words that are in the movie where I meet with the journalist and say, when I represented someone charged with murder, nobody dug up my backyard represented somebody charged with rape. Nobody thought I was a rapist. 
Um, but now all of a sudden I'm representing someone charged with terrorism and people think I must be a terrorist and, and that these people, I should not be representing these people. Um, but you know, when I represented somebody who, who raped a three-year-old baby, nobody said she shouldn't represent that. So I make that point in this op-ed I wrote um, and that is those words, those exact words are in the movie. Yeah, um, you just, you know, if you're a criminal defense lawyer, you have to learn that people are not going to like what you do. And you have to stand up and say, I represent the accused person. Um, you know, I, I was involved in a case in Ireland, too. And uh, there were certainly protesters there um, when we represented Mr. McKibbitt um, and um, uh, Michael McKibbitt. And there were there were always protesters outside the court and what was so uh unique or why, why were cases of terrorism treated that way did it come from the political system or did, did you ever understand why people got so enraged about potential terrorists rather than other criminals terrorism is a unique crime that we shouldn't even have uh, there is no international definition of terrorism i don't think there ever will be um, the definitions are vague and um, movable, changeable. Um, and you know when you when you chart, when you accuse someone of murder, you look into, you look at you're looking at that person. That person either committed the crime or didn't commit the crime. But when you accuse someone of terrorism, you tend to consider um, the person, everyone who might be like that person, all all the other black people or all the other Muslims or whatever. Um, so it's a, it becomes a collective crime. And it's in my view, 100% a political crime, always. There's no reason for it. We have rape, we have murder, we have ethnic cleansing, we have um, crimes against humanity, we have torture, you know, whatever. All those things are illegal. Why do we need to add terrorism to them? We shouldn't have this crime. And there are people who've written about this for 60, 70 years saying we should never have had the crime of terrorism, should never have come about. And, and I believe that. It's amazing that really, uh, let's say in democracies like Ireland and the UK and many other um, democracies, we look to America as a bastion of democracy. But then when I see that film, with, um, when I see the Mauritanian, I think, God, how can torture go on here? And we're meant to be looking up to this country they're, they're meant to be it's meant to be the role models now of course it's not the country itself um it's it, it's some people in some offices um but it, it is truly shocking uh, i might just go on to a lighter note and thank you very much for staying with me nancy um what was it like to be played by such a big hollywood star like uh, jodie foster well being played by jodie foster was something i never ever expected to happen um, and I was so excited and uh, amazed. Um, and she's such a lovely person. Um, I thought, you know, she's 15 years younger than I am, or, or maybe 12 years younger. But when this was all happening, that's how old I was. This was that long ago. So it made sense. But, and, you know, it's one of the most exciting things that has ever happened to me is to have Jodie Foster playing me. She's so good. And she's been acting, you know, since she was three years old. There's 
there's nobody who knows the 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 um, creative process really the way she does. Um, and she she did it. She says she laughs and says uh, that she plays a much meaner me than I am. And I think she does. I don't think I'm mean like that. I don't think I'm rude. Um, but some of my friends would beg to differ and say, <laughs> oh, yes, you, you can be just that mean and rude and curt when you want to be. So maybe she got it spot on, you know, but uh, she, she did a great job. And it's been great to get to know her and learn more about her and what a, what a terrific person she is. You're going to keep fighting for people like Muhammad or those who, who don't have representation? Well, I only have one left, um, and he's uh, Abrahim El Nasri. He's also in Guantanamo facing the death penalty. Um, uh, I, I mean, he, he's never, they're never going to try him. They just can't get there. Um, they can't get past the pretrial uh, portion of the case. But I don't think he's going to get out of Guantanamo. I do represent him in the UK in a tribunal um, that is investigating the MI6 and whether they ever interviewed him. Um, and we have cases in the European Court of Human Rights. We've won two, got 200,000 euros. Uh, those cases continue and we have a third one coming up. And we have a case in the International Criminal Court where he's a victim of CIA torture in the black sites. And he was also brutally tortured. Uh, so, yes, I represent him. I don't know what else I'm going to do. I'm kind of in a process of changing in my life. So we'll see what happens next. We'll see what happens. What a great note to end on. Nancy Hollander, criminal defense lawyer, thank you very much for coming on the show. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. If you have not seen The Mauritanian on Amazon Prime yet, I highly recommend you do. While it's not easy watching all the time, it is certainly worth uh, sitting down and having a look at. That's it for this bonus taster episode of Panoramica. The first official episode of Panoramica will be with law lecturer Larry Donnelly, who is also a radio contributor and writer for the journal.ie. He will be chatting about growing up in Boston, moving to Ireland, politics, education, and more, including his new book, The Bostonian. Be sure to tune in to Flirt FM at 12pm on Thursday the 4th of November or you can listen to it on Spotify, Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. I look forward to speaking with you then.